all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, and my guest today is Caitlin Armstrong. She is a pediatric endocrinology nurse practitioner, and we're going to talk a little bit about diabetes today and the difference between type 1 and type 2 and lots of different information about that, so it's going to be a great show. You want to give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464, or you can always email me at fit at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Caitlin. Good morning. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. And we were talking about how it's kind of weird because (laughs) I taught you in nursing school many, many years ago. So I think this is the first time that I've had a guest that is a former student, and I could not be more proud Uh of of what you've done. And now you're the expert on this topic, and you're going to help help us get through this today and and help folks uh, talk about pediatric diabetes. So tell me a little bit about what a pediatric endocrinologist and, and the nurse practitioner that works with them. What do you guys do? Absolutely. So um, the biggest part of what we do is diabetes. When we think about the endocrine system, that is the main diagnosis that we really take care of. But also the endocrine system, think about just a big web of organs that one's telling one to do this or that and hormones are released and um, there's feedback systems and, you know, they control growth and, um, Metabolism, metabolism, and all that kind of lots stuff. of different things. So, um, but you know, we see patients that have trouble with growth. You know, short stature, things like that, or their thyroid gland. You know, that's another um, one of the diagnoses that we see: hypo or hyperthyroidism. So, but mainly, I just take care of our kiddos with diabetes, type one and type two, and pre-diabetes. So that's a, a big enough job as it is, it, for it sure. Is, it is, and we're mm-hmm. glad that we've got somebody like yeah. you taking care of these kids sure. with that. Now, how did you get to this specialty? Right. You know, what led you to do pediatric diabetic care? Sure. So I have a little bit of a personal history with diabetes or type 1 diabetes specifically. So um, I myself have type 1 diabetes. My dad also has type 1 diabetes. So I grew up, you know, seeing him take care of his diabetes. And then when I was diagnosed, of course, it was a a shock. But, you know, I was more used to watching him take care of himself. So um, it was an easy transition as easy a transition as it can be as a 15-year-old, you know. Um, But I think that really gives me a unique perspective on um, what our kids are going through. Now, I I tell my patients, I do not not claim to know any more than, you know, the physician. Absolutely not. But I do live with it every day. And so I know the struggles. The challenges. The challenges. So um, anyway, then after being diagnosed, I, I felt like I was led to the medical field. And then I wanted to become a nurse. And then um, in speaking with the chief of our division, when it was time to choose what field I wanted to go into, you know, it was just a perfect fit. So I'm so blessed 
to have this position, and I'm I am blessed every day to see if I can help patients um, go through what I'm going through, too. Mm-hmm. So. And kids, you know, of course, I've talked about the fact that pediatrics is my, my love and my heart as well, mm-hmm. and that I think they're the best patients yes. out there. But, you know, watching children go through diabetes mm-hmm. and, and caring for themselves, you know, it makes you... Uh, proud of the progress that they do. You know, an adult Absolutely. sometimes will fuss about, you know, pricking their finger and taking shots. But when you see a two-year-old just oh, yeah. whip out their little needles and, you know, check their blood sugar, it's... It's it, amazing. It is. It is. They do such a great job with it. But it is hard. It, it is. is. You and, know. you know, the family dynamic, you know, with now you're dealing with the not only the patient, but the caregiver, the parent. So it's a lot to, to juggle and um, figure out how to help them navigate they're living a normal life and growing normally while taking care of their diabetes. So, um, but it's doable. For it sure. is. It is mm-hmm. doable. And you're also a certified diabetes educator. Right. So you uh, know kind of the full gamut of diabetes while you normally work with kids. You do um, have knowledge right. about how adults can manage their diabetes better. So if you guys that are listening have problems with your blood sugar, with diabetes, we so want to talk with you today. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring now, Caitlin, I want to talk about the different types of, of sure. diabetes. Okay. And really the two big ones are type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Right. What What is type 1 and what is type 2? Okay. So um, although they are really are the uh, linked together, they are very different. And um, one thing that surprised me the most when I started working with pediatric patients is the number of patients with type 2 diabetes and, you know, zero to 18. Mm -hmm. I was just stunned. And I actually think right now I would, I would guesstimate about 70% of our patients have type one and 30% have type two or pre-diabetes. So when we talk about type one diabetes, it's in a group of diseases we call autoimmune diseases. So that means your own immune system, for whatever reason, attacks a part of your body, this being the pancreas or part of the pancreas that produces insulin, making it not able to produce insulin anymore. So we do know that there are possible triggers, you know, environmental triggers um, and things like that that sort of turn the switch on and make this person more susceptible to developing type 1 diabetes. But a lot of patients will say, well, we don't have it in our family. You know, no one in the family has diabetes, mm-hmm. type 1 diabetes. Well, it's not necessarily related to genetics or heredity. Um, so again, if something triggers the immune system to attack the pancreas, and then the point between that process and then the, the development of diabetes or total um, s- cessation of the pancreas producing insulin is usually a pretty quick process. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the patients show up uh, with lots of symptoms, um, and then you know they're diagnosed pretty quickly thereafter. Um, so that's type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes patients do have to have insulin to mm-hmm. live. There is no, unfortunately, there's no cure. Um, we're working toward that, but we do, these patients do have to have insulin. Um, there's no pill or diet or exercise, you know, that can cure or treat this type of diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is a little bit different. Same issues with high blood sugar and not enough insulin circulating in the body, but it, it is for a different reason. So these patients are diagnosed. Um, a, a lot of times we see a strong family history. So the heredity or genetic component with type 2 diabetes is more prevalent than type 1. Um, you know, these patients a lot of times will see that their weight um, 
is, is elevated or they're obese. Um, it has to do with your lifestyle. So we, we call it a sedentary lifestyle, meaning not very active. Not getting up and moving as much as we should. Correct. Um, and, you know, these patients have a problem not with their pancreas producing insulin, but getting the insulin where it needs to go. And the big term that we talk about a lot is insulin resistance. So it's like these patients need so much more insulin to do what their pancreas is supposed to do, mm-hmm. their body is supposed to right. do. Um, now, these patients don't necessarily need insulin, but a lot of times we end up putting patients on insulin, especially after a long time of having type 2 diabetes. Kind of the pancreas sort of gets tired, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we see a good many um, of our pediatric patients presenting Sometimes we can't tell if they're type 1 or type 2, and um, they need it, They need insulin. So they may, in fact, have type 2 diabetes, but need to be on insulin at least for a short time. Yeah, and that brings me to an email question that I got sure. that asked, you know, they said, is type 1 diabetes always children? Right. So um, typically type 1 diagnosis. Type 1 diabetes is diagnosed in childhood and adolescence. Um, You know, we have patients as young as 18 months old, you know, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Now, it can also be diagnosed into the 20s and maybe early 30s. There is a form of type 1 diabetes called late onset diabetes that could be diagnosed in the 40s and 50s. But this is very rare. Um, But primarily, yes, it's diagnosed in childhood. But it does not mean that a child with diabetes necessarily has type 1 diabetes. Correct. So just like you mentioned, you're starting to see more and more type 2 diabetes diagnoses in children. Absolutely. Um, you know, and the way I like to think about the difference between the two, just like you said, type mm-hmm. 1 is there's just you're out of insulin. Mm-hmm. You just your pancreas has has stopped making Correct. insulin. So absolutely, we're going to have to substitute uh, with with some insulin for that. Mm-hmm. With type two, y- your body's just not able to use the insulin that you're making. And when we're talking about not able to use it, like what is it supposed to use it for? Mm-hmm. You know, well, when we eat and we have sugar in our bloodstream. That's the fuel for our muscle cells and our brain cells and all that kind of good stuff. But we have to have kind of a transporter to get the sugar out of the bloodstream and into the muscle to be used. And that's what insulin does for us. It helps us take up the sugar and use it. So if we've got an insulin resistance, it's like our muscles are saying, nope, you know, I'm not, I don't have any help. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. going to be able to take up the sugar. Right. And it stays in your bloodstream and you have the symptoms of, of too high of a blood sugar. So we've really got to work on treating that resistance yes. so that our body can use the insulin that we're already making for that. Right. And, you know, one thing that we have to think about is you mentioned that um, – the genetic component mm-hmm. is actually more prevalent in the type 2 population. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit different than what you normally think of because you do sit sometimes see family members right. that like your dad was type 1 and then you have type 1. Yeah. And, you know, it's really kind of just like a like a predisposition to it. Mm-hmm. It makes you a little bit more likely, but we don't see quite as strong of a genetic pattern through there. Right. Yes. So we like to talk about modifiable risk factors and non-modifiable risk factors. Mm-hmm. You know, and a, a modifiable risk factor is something we can do something about. Non-modifiable, we can't. Right. So you cannot change your family, even though mm-hmm. sometimes people wish they could change their family. <laughs> right. um, you know, you can't change the genetic part yeah. of you. So we have to work on those modifiable risk Mm -hmm. factors, which you mentioned being sedentary. Mm -hmm. So the more active we are, that decreases our risk of having uh, diabetes, Mm -hmm. what we're eating. Mm -hmm. So we got to work on, you know, 
how much we're stressing our pancreas out, you know, because your pancreas yeah. is already a little a little tired if you've mm-hmm. got, you know, if you're pre-diabetic or in, the, in, in that type 2 diabetes range, we certainly mm-hmm. don't want to make it work harder. So right. what foods are things that uh, stress out the pancreas a little bit more, make it work harder? Right. So when we think about a, the, the major food group that breaks down into glucose or another way of saying sugar in the bloodstream, that's the gr- food group called carbohydrates. And I know in the past 10 years, there's been a lot of fad diets talking about low carb diets. No and, carb. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> um, so carbohydrates could be anything from a Snicker bar to a piece of pizza to even a piece of fruit um, or milk, you know, things that you think of, oh, that not that healthy? Well, they do break down into sugar. So um, a lot of times if I'm seeing a patient for the first time and I'm thinking, okay, this patient probably has type 2 diabetes, I always ask the parent and the patient about what are we drinking? Mm -hmm. Number one, you know, so a lot of times they'll tell me soda, you know, a sugar containing beverage like juice, soda, sweet tea, you know, how many are we having a day? Oh, upwards of five to six, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So that is a big um, alarm to me. If we're drinking a lot of sugary drinks, then that really... um, you know, that's the, that's the major the driver of it. Yeah. Right. And it can be it. I kind of call that low hanging fruit because that's a, right. a, a change that we can make that is not necessarily as hard as some of the food choices. Mm-hmm. You know, because when you're a little kid, you know, when you go to a birthday party, you want birthday cake right. and, you know, you want a sucker at mm-hmm. Halloween. Mm-hmm. You know, those tend to be a little bit harder to get folks to, right. to let go of. Right. Um, but, you know, if we're drinking five and six sodas or juices or something like that a day, even cutting back to, you know, At two least, a day yeah. is going to be much better mm-hmm. for you in the long run mm-hmm. as far as your, your glucose pattern with right. that. So, you know, beverages are kind of one of the first things I work on as well. You mm-hmm. know, I usually do more adult lifestyle management, and that's mm-hmm. the number one thing we talk about. You know, yeah. they tell me. What you're drinking, right? You know, and it usually winds up being, you know, somewhere around a thousand to fifteen hundred calories worth of Of just beverage, you know. And there's no wonder that we're not able to to lose weight Mm -hmm. or to, you know, achieve a normal glucose pattern when Mm -hmm. when that many of your calories are coming strictly from what what you're drinking. So it's an excellent idea to kind of change that change that out. Pick more waters, you know. even a low-fat dairy can be, you know, an option. Mm-hmm. It does have carbohydrates in it, but I would still rather see you drink a milk than drink a definitely a, a soda, you know, right. from that perspective. Right. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about prediabetes and what that means and how we should address that issue. If you want to join in our conversation, please give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Goodwell, and today my guest is Caitlin Armstrong. She's a pediatric endocrinology nurse practitioner, and we're talking diabetes today. And if you want to talk with us about diabetes, whether it be type 1, type 2, or pre-diabetes, we would love to talk with you. Our number is 1-877-672-7464. As always, you can email me at fit at mpbonline.org. And Caitlin, before we went on the break, we were talking about the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Well, we've kind of thrown out um, a term uh, called pre-diabetes, and we're really starting to see a mm-hmm. whole lot more folks um, coming in with this. Right. And that's <clears throat> kind of a good thing and a, and a bad thing. <laughs> you know, from a, from the bad side of it, oh, we've got more folks that, we're at, that are having high sugar spells. Right. But the good part about it is this is the time that we can really make a big impact. Right. If we can start treating you in that pre-diabetes mm-hmm. range, then we're going to prevent a lot of the chronic con- side effects that go along with having diabetes for a long period of time. We can actually right. kind of re- reverse yeah. it. Now, I'll hear, hear people say it's curing it, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I never really say that it's cured, you know, because yeah. if you kind of go back into, you know, not exercising, eating foods that are not as good for you, the glucose intolerance is going to kind of come That's back right. and manifest itself a little bit out. Right. But tell me briefly what prediabetes means. Okay. So like you said, um, I like to think of it as sort of the precursor t- uh, before we hit type 2 diabetes. Um, and a, a lot of times you'll hear the term borderline diabetes. Mm-hmm. So I hear that all the time. Yeah. So that is kind of synonymous with prediabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that we define prediabetes is basically a blood test called um, a hemoglobin A1C. And I know we haven't really talked about that. Mm-hmm. And it's, sometimes it's a little hard to, to describe or explain, but a hemoglobin A1C is a blood test that gives us the average blood sugar over the past two to three months. So at a certain level of hemoglobin A1C, we do diagnose somebody with prediabetes. Um, I, a lot of times, so when we talk about impaired glucose tolerance and insulin resistance, um, kind of the same thing, your body is just not doing what it's supposed to, mm-hmm. to, to get the glucose where it needs to go. Um, so these people may ne- not necessarily check their blood sugar at home and see an abnormally high blood sugar, you know, it, it, but we do, like I said, diagnose it a lot of times with the hemoglobin A1C mm-hmm. level. Um, so... And, and like Dr. Bidwell said, it is very important to know to, um, be aware of the patients at this point in time because we can do something about mm-hmm. it, and we can be effective too. Mm-hmm. Um, Much easier to treat it right before we get right a lot more loss mm-hmm. of pancreatic function. Correct, correct. So um, a lot of times we go at it in a couple of ways, you know, with lifestyle modifications such as um, getting more exercise changing what we're eating and drinking and then also um sometimes we can add a medica- a, a medication that will help help out as well help um, you use that insulin a little right. bit better and right. we're going to talk some more about prediabetes but i do want to go um to the phone lines and talk to our caller in brandon good morning howard good morning how are you i'm doing fine but really curious okay well let us have it we'll see what we can do 
All right. I, somebody told me that even though you're drinking, drinking diet drinks and there's no or essentially no calories in one of those, that uh, somehow or another the response of your body to those diet drinks is similar enough to what's going on when you're consuming actual sugar that it also helps to promote the pathway towards diabetes, and I'm wondering if that's correct. Well, really one of the ways that diet drinks and really diet products in general can contribute to um, the sugar problem is not necessarily from that pathway, but um, it kind of makes us think that everything is supposed to taste sweet. And so we wind up over seasoning foods and over sweetening things because we're looking for that sweetened taste in there. So that's one way. There are some, you know, biochemical reactions that take place that we don't really fully understand yet. But we do know that just simply substituting a diet soda for a regular soda is not going to be um, the the magic bullet for um, turning the tide on a high blood sugar level so again they're not evil as well you know i don't ever say any food or beverage is just strictly off limits for someone but one of the big things that diet sodas do have is sodium even though they say on them very low sodium food Mm -hmm. if you're consuming three four or five of those that's going to add up and the the sodium is actually going to cause a much bigger problem with our blood pressure um, from that perspective which is not good when we have diabetes because just having diabetes makes us have a twice as likelihood of having a cardiovascular event. So, you know, one diet soda here and there, not going to be that problem, but it shouldn't be your main beverage substitution when you're trying to move to a healthier lifestyle. It really should be a water. If you feel like you need the the carbonation, then more of like a sparkling water, that type of thing. But you got to be careful with those sparkling waters too, because sometimes they are mm-hmm. artificially sweetened and have that kind of stuff in it. So your your sparkling waters should be only three ingredients. They should just be water, carbonation, and then if there's a flavoring added mm-hmm. to it from that perspective. Um, so that's kind of that's that on diet uh, drinks. Mo- most of the drinks that are commercially available currently have aspartame, aspartame. or mm-hmm. something else. In mm-hmm. them. I'm wondering about the the, uh, stevia that's sort of come to everybody's attention the last few years, if that has, of course, it has the same sweetening effect, and that would lead to what you're talking about, the psychological thing to start off with, but how about that biologically? You know, as far as, and I, I don't know the exact biochemistry on that, I do know that when we're choosing an artificial sweetener, I would much rather see someone pick a Stevia or, you know, Trivia is one of the brand names for that because it is a little bit more of a natural product. You know, it is refined out from um, a plant. And so it's a little bit more natural of, of a substance than, let's say, an aspartame or even a sucralose, which is your, your Splenda brand product. So Stevia is my sweetener of choice when I'm artificially sweetening something. But pretty much the only thing that gets artificially sweetened at my house is I have a packet in my coffee because (laughs) I just need my coffee and all my listeners need my coffee (laughs) because if I have to string more than three words together and be nice, I have to have my cup of coffee right there. Um, But, you know, it looks promising as far as a, you know, a better, better choice again in moderation, um, nothing in, in excess. Thank you. You're welcome, Howard. Thank you for your call. 
And if you guys want to give us a call, you can call in at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email me at fit at mpbonline.org. Now, getting back to prediabetes, mm-hmm. the way I like to think of it is like a, a, uh, a traffic light. You right. know, this is kind of the yellow mm-hmm. light on the traffic signal. Now, I know some folks think that the yellow light means let me go <laughs> as fast as right. I can before <laughs> it turns to red. But the intention of that yeah. yellow light is caution. Slow down. Slow down, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And that's really what our bodies are trying to tell us with mm-hmm. prediabetes is that, hey, there's a problem going on. And if we don't slow this down, we're going to have diabetes right. in the next, you know, Five years or so, exactly. or, or less, you know, depending on how long you've had prediabetes. Mm-hmm. But there's really kind of two two problems that can go on. You can have um, impaired fasting glucose, mm-hmm. so meaning right. your first thing in the morning sugars or your first sugar um, that you take after not eating for 8 to 12 hours is high. Mm-hmm. And then there's the impaired glucose tolerance that you mentioned, and that's the one that's after you've eaten some food, Mm -hmm. um, that your body is not able to handle that glucose load appropriately. So, you know, what I have patients do is, you know, I get them to take first thing in the morning blood sugars, and then I get them to do two hours after a meal um, to see. Because, you know, if you eat a meal and you check your sugar 15 minutes later, 15, 30 minutes later, it's going to be, it's going to be high, you know, because your body's still working on that, you know, but an hour and a half, two hours after that meal, if your pancreas is working like it should, it should be back down into a normal range with that. So, and I usually tell folks to swap up the meals like today, Mm -hmm. check it two hours after breakfast, Mm -hmm. then the next day, check it two hours after lunch and then check it two hours after dinner. Um, I try not to get them to check it every meal a day because that's a lot of finger pokes It is, and people get, it's excessive. Yeah. People get worn out from that, but we can space it out. And you know, I'm a big proponent of food diaries as well. I love for folks to write Mm -hmm. down what they're eating and give me a blood sugar because that, that is really good. That tells you the full story. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe um, bananas are not your thing. You know, maybe right. your body is just not able to process that banana and you always have a high sugar when you eat bananas. But if you eat apples, mm-hmm. your sugar stays Pretty within steady. a, you know, within a, a good range. And I don't know why that happens, but, you know. Everybody's different. Everybody is, what is found. different. You yeah. know, I've seen some people who can eat rice and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. And some people whose rice will shoot their sugar up to 400, like yes. nobody's business, you know. Yeah. So it really is giving your healthcare provider a much better set of information in order to be able to, to help you mm-hmm. make a healthy dietary pattern and a medication pattern for that. Because there are right. so many meds out there. Mm-hmm. that work at different parts of the food cycle, you know, whether you've eaten food or whether it's just kind of background control mm-hmm. all the time. And we want to make sure that we're able to adjust those meds to meet the needs of right. the patient. Because when we're just making blanket med changes, that's when people have low blood sugars and don't feel good and all that kind of stuff. And then they say, well, I'm just not going to do this it's, anymore. It doesn't help with compliance. Right. Yeah. It does not help with compliance. <laughs> and, you know, what I usually say with compliance is, very rarely do I see somebody who just doesn't want to do what right. you ask them to do. You know, there's always something going on that's affecting mm-hmm. the ability of the oh, person yeah. to to be on the same medication regimen that, that you're asking them to be. And if people are feeling terrible or their sugars are 50 mm-hmm. every day when they wake up, I wouldn't take it either, right. you know. Right. So it's it's our job to to figure that out and exactly. be, a, be a partner with the patient and get them on the correct um 
medications with that. So um, when we're talking about meds, you know, you've mentioned being on insulin and not being on insulin Mm -hmm. and that type one uh, patients are always going to be on some insulin, right? Because their pancreas just doesn't make it anymore. So they've got to have some insulin. Mm -hmm. But type two patients, it can go either way. They can be on pills or they can be on insulin. Right. But just because they're on insulin does not mean they're a type one patient. Correct. Yes. So tell me the difference with that. You know, why would we uh, Uh use insulin in a type two patient? Okay. So, and I know it differs a little bit between pediatrics and adults, but in pediatrics, we're pretty, um, you know, we're not, we're not slow on the uptake as far as starting a patient on Mm -hmm. insulin. Um, you know, usually if the hemoglobin A1C reaches a level or the blood sugars reach a certain level, when they're mostly in the two and three hundreds at that point, this patient obviously is requiring some insulin, Um, you know, and then, of course, we like to try lifestyle modifications Mm -hmm. for our type two patients that goes even if they're on insulin, we want them to really work on yeah, it's what not an eating. either or thing. Yeah, like you got to cha- you got to work on what you're eating. That's right. Regardless. Um, and then, you know, another medication that has been used for many, many years called metformin or glucophage. Um, you know, we utilize that a lot in our type two and our prediabetes patients. Um, and how do, what does that medicine do? So it works by um, helping with the, what we call the insulin resistance. So it helps your body at the muscle and cellular level use the insulin that you're already making kind of like a little gatekeeper that's right it's like here you go i'll I'll unlock the door for you and come on in right and it also decreases our liver's continuous glucose output um you know and, and that can help indirectly kind of help with our blood sugar yeah, level. Yeah, because, you know, liver is where you store glycogen. Mm-hmm. And so in times where we don't have food, it's a good thing for our liver to kind of <laughs> squirt out a little right. extra sugar so that we don't have a low blood sugar and pass out and all those kinds of things. But with diabetes, sometimes that, that regulation gets thrown off a mm-hmm. little bit. And so sugar will just kind of get broken down and squirted out. Whether we need it, whether we need it or not, and then you've already got muscles that are not able to use the insulin that we have as well, and that's why we get too much. These too much high (laughs) blood sugars going on with that. So that's why that medicine works on a couple different ways, and why it wouldn't be appropriate for a type one patient because Hmm. they don't make Make any insulin. So it's not it's not that they need help using their insulin; they just need some insulin. Yep. All right, we're going to go to Corinth and talk with Sam this morning. Good morning, Sam. Good morning. How are you? Well, I'm well, thank you. Well, good. I just wanted to mention to you, I don't know if any of your, uh, some of your listeners may not be aware of this, but Camp Hopewell is a church camp located about six miles east of Oxford on Highway 30 between Oxford and New Albany. And in the summertime during the camp season, we sponsor diabetic camps for youngsters with diabetes. These camps are staffed by physicians, uh, registered nurses, pharmacists, uh, people who are specialized in the diagnosis and treatment of youngsters with uh, diabetes. Last year, we had a couple of what we call wee bit camps for the little bitty guys, <laughs> the people from the young folks from uh, six to eight years old. And so uh, if somebody uh, has a child and is interested, these kids learn how to monitor their blood sugar levels. They learn about diet and what to eat and what to stay away from. Uh, And in addition to all that, 
Well, they also uh, learn how to properly uh, maintain their blood sugar levels and administer medication. But in addition to all that, they have the same camp experiences that any youngster anywhere would have, swimming and riding horses and playing tennis and basketball and running through the woods and taking field trips and camping out overnight and roasting marshmallows. <laughs> and a lot of these youngsters feel when they're in school uh, feel kind of like outsiders because right. they're not like all these other kids and they have to watch what they eat and watch what they do and so forth. But when they go to Camp Hopewell during the summertime, they're just a bunch of kids having a good time and learning about diabetes. So I thought you might want to pass that on oh, to yeah. your listeners. Absolutely. There's a website, uh, com, where you can go. Uh, they'll have the camp schedule up in uh, early uh, 2018, and so one can go on there and see when the camps are and uh, register online and so forth. And uh, so there you are. Thank you for your help with all this. Absolutely. Thank you for your help with all this, and thank you for for telling us about that. Caitlin was smiling, so I think that means she knows about Camp Hope well. We've got lots of patients who attend, and it's wonderful. Thank you so much for what y'all do. Thank you so much, and have a good day. Have a good Monday. Now, there's also a camp yeah. in in the metro area as well. What's That's the name right. of that camp? It's Camp Can Do, um, spelled K-A-N-D-U. It's um, hosted by the Diabetes Foundation of Mississippi. So there are usually two, two sessions per year, one in the fall and maybe one in the summer. Um, but it's at Twin Lakes camp mm-hmm. um, in Florence, Mississippi. It's wonderful. It, it is. You know. I've actually gone and volunteered with, oh, with yeah. them. So I went and did the nutrition uh-huh. piece with that. And we took lots of um, play food out there and we built healthy plates and there learned about about all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. a lot of the, those kids are they're on top of it. They right. know, you know, they were able to teach me some things <laughs> about uh, different food combinations that are yeah. kid friendly and that they would like to eat that are right. not going to hurt their blood sugar. So both of those are great organizations. Great. And it's it's we're fortunate that we've got got them kind of that's in the top North part of the state and mm-hmm. then one more centrally located yeah. um i don't know if there's one down by the coast or anything like that but now that i'm not sure if of, anybody knows of one please yeah. uh, let us know about it because we would love to uh, send some kiddos that way as well because we want to make sure that kids are getting to be kids yeah you know i love what he said about um you know with type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes, you you know, as a kid, you just feel different because mm-hmm. you're told you cannot do this or you cannot do that. And I, I really promote, you know, kids with diabetes being able to do whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, play tennis, be on the dance team, go swimming. There is a we, we will figure it out. You right. know, we will work around the diabetes. The diabetes need the, the sooner we can just fit it into our lifestyle and make it just your little imaginary friend who's mm-hmm. with you all the time, the better and the easier it will be. You have to be okay with having high blood sugars. You have to be okay with low blood sugars every now and then. You know, we don't expect perfection, but, you know, um, letting these kids be kids is one of the most important things to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, I think, yeah. from all pediatric providers. Yeah. That's, you know, that's what we're trying to focus on is, right. you know, absolutely taking care of their health needs, but taking care of, they're developing yeah. psyche and right. you know we've got to let them be be kids mm-hmm. and we've got to figure out how we can make the best uh, treatment plan available to take care of their medical needs but also let them grow and be be kiddos you know because right. that's that's what it's all about mm-hmm. you know those, those sweet babies <laughs> um now i want to talk a little bit about 
warning signs because, you know, you mentioned that type one um, can have a relatively quick onset. You know, Mm -hmm. they're not, they haven't been sick for a while, you know. So what are those symptoms that can kind of occur Mm -hmm. over a couple of weeks or so that really say, hey, this is a problem and we need to go get this child checked out? Right. So um, we talk a lot about the, what we call the three P's, and, and, you know, the medical term would be polyuria, polydipsia, and polyphagia. So really, in layman's terms, that really means drinking a lot, urinating a lot, and eating a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is the where it gets tricky in kids. A lot of parents will say, oh, we're going through a growth spurt, so maybe... They've, they're eating a little bit more. Or, you know, oh, it's the summer in Mississippi. Of course he's going to drink more. Right. Um, <clears throat> but if your child is drinking excessively, um, you know, anything they can get their hands on, if they're waking up at night to get something to drink because they're so thirsty, mm-hmm. that's a warning sign. Um, if they are getting up at night to urinate or if the teacher tells you, you know, Johnny is has asked to use the restroom about every 30 minutes mm-hmm. or every 45 minutes, you know then that's that's not normal Mm -hmm. for sure you know but that's sort of the body's way of saying hey we've got way too much sugar in here and i'm trying to get rid of it so your body you know you're you're trying to dilute it out is what it's trying to do you know right and a lot of times we also see weight loss so the reason for that is without insulin like dr bigwell explained we can't the the glucose cannot get into the cell you know where it needs to be um, to use for energy. So basically, you're eating, it's breaking down into glucose, the carbohydrates are, and then they're just going straight through mm-hmm. out of the urine. Mm-hmm. Um, so another thing that you might notice would be frequent headaches, um, even sometimes abdominal pain. Now, the warning signs for what we call an acute complication of diabetes or type 1 diabetes, um, diabetic ketoacidosis, that's kind of the point where your child is very, very ill, and it's critical that they get to an emergency room. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they are um, vomiting, if they're breathing rapidly and deeply, you know, and if they just don't look well at all, that's an emergency situation. But a lot of times our kids come into the hospital um you know, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes uh, that way. But also just if they were to go to the doctor, if the parent brought them to the doctor, say, you know, listing the symptoms of, you know, urinating a lot, drinking a lot, the doctor should have a high degree of suspicion, mm-hmm. you know, that this could be type 1 diabetes. Yeah. Usually um, the ones that I've wound up diag- diagnosing with type 1, mm-hmm. um, they've either brought them in um, for fatigue and weight loss. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, something's not right. Like they're eating all the time, but they're not, they're not gaining any weight, you mm-hmm. know, um, or they think they have a urinary tract infection. Right. Because they're peeing so frequently. Right. That they're like, something's going on. Like what, you know, he, mm-hmm. he's just peeing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do a finger stick in the office and they're sugar. There it is. You know, 300. Well, you know, I don't have to do an A1C. I can right. pretty much go ahead and say that, you know, That's you're going to see this is what this is going on. Yeah. Um, now, for uh, you mentioned DKA and that, uh-huh. that is something that should definitely send you to the to the ER for yeah. that. But right. what about, you know, you go in to see your pediatrician or your family practitioner and mm-hmm. they check a sugar and it's 300. Is mm-hmm. that does that kid need to go through the emergency department then, or what do we need to do with those kids? So a lot of times um, we'll get phone calls from uh, primary care doctors, you know, with that situation. Mm-hmm. We will ask them to check the urine mm-hmm. for ketones. Now, ketones 
are kind of a precursor to that DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis. So we're trying to what we're trying to decide is can we see this patient in the clinic and 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 take care of them that way, or do they really need to be admitted and started on insulin? Mm-hmm. Definitely, we want to make sure they're not in acidosis. So the way you do that, you know, you can get up a, a blood gas. I don't know that you can do that necessarily in a pediatric. Yeah, I am not clinic. holding anybody down but, and, and doing a blood um, gas. You know, just a, a CMP or BMP. Yeah. You know, and check that way um, to see if it's you know something we really need to take care of mm-hmm. right away. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if they need insulin, for our patients, we're going to admit them mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of education involved in giving an insulin injection, um, you know, how to dose the insulin. What is diabetes? You know, it, it's a lot. It's a of lot education. of information that gets thrown, so, thrown at you. Um, there's no way to really get all of that done in a 30 minute clinic visit. Yeah. So yeah. We, we admit them to the hospital. All right, we're going to take our last break of the show, and now is the time to give us a call if you're wanting to speak with us. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And when we come back, we'll be talking some more about diabetes, and I want to talk about insulin pumps when we come back. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. We're talking about diabetes today and in particular childhood diabetes with my guest, Caitlin Armstrong, who is a pediatric endocrinology nurse practitioner at UMC. Before we went on the break, we had had some great callers with some great information about some camps in the area for children with diabetes, and we were talking about warning signs and and things that should prompt you to seek uh, care, and we talked about uh, weight loss, being thirsty, urinating all the time, um, fatigue, and just not feeling good, Uh, but those type 2 symptoms are a little Mm -hmm. less, uh, a little less... um, red flaggish you know right. they're, they're not they don't stand up and say hey i'm peeing all the time right. for the most part um one of the things that uh, we see sometimes is frequent infections mm-hmm. uh, in kiddos uh, yeah. that have type 2 or adults that have type 2 diabetes because of the high sugar content in the blood it's kind of a, a breeding ground yeah <laughs> so you know repeated yeast infections yeah. that are hard to get rid of skin um, infections mm-hmm. that don't heal well they're taking longer to heal Right. And our adults, folks that get repeated, um, like abscesses that need to be drained, we always look um, to see if they what their blood sugar is mm-hmm. looking like from that perspective on that. And then there can be some um, changes in the skin mm, yes. tone as well mm-hmm. that can point to some problems with insulin. What is that called? So what we're talking about is something called acanthosis nigricans. Big old fancy word. It, it is. <laughs> and um, what it, what now it's more, we see it more in African-Americans 
Americans um, versus Caucasians and, and, you know, Native Americans. Um, what it is is a darkening of the skin. Um, it, it has sort of a more velvety texture, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. So it usually occurs mostly in the back of the neck or sometimes all the way around the neck. Um, a lot of times under the arm, you know, where your arm fold. Uh, there at the elbow, you know, where there's a bend yeah. where you could bend the groin area. Um, and a lot of parents will say, you know, I thought this was dirt mm-hmm. or so I had, you know, Johnny go take another bath and mm-hmm. it didn't, you know, and it I didn't I, wash away. Right. <laughs> and, you know, they try creams and this, this and that. But really, it's basically a physical manifestation of insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I tell my patients all the time, I'll look around in the grocery store and I'll see somebody and I'll want to oh, yeah. I want to. I mean, I, I sure. tap them on the yeah. shoulder and be like, you get your blood sugar checked. Right. But it's a very obvious, um, you know, vis- visible sign of, of diabetes, possible diabetes or insulin resistance. Yeah, it could mm-hmm. still be in that pre-diabetes range. Right. So definitely if that's something that you go, hmm, I wonder if that's me or I right. wonder if that's my kid, mm-hmm. bring them in. Yeah. Let us look at that. Let us check mm-hmm. a sugar and make sure because, you know, definitely if we can get them before, mm-hmm. you know, DKA mm-hmm. happens or before mm-hmm. full-on diabetes happens, that's what we want. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's what we want to do. So right. those were some um, good tips for that. Now, talk to me about insulin pumps. Yeah. Because, you know, we insulin, insulin comes injectable. That's right. how you get insulin. There's no insulin pill that you can swallow. It wouldn't survive going through the stomach. That's right. Uh, even though there's lots of research out there working on different mm-hmm. delivery methods. Um, mm-hmm. There was an inhaled insulin yes. at one point in time. Yeah. Um, I know that that particular it, brand got got pulled. Yeah. There's not another one now. Is it, well, is it, it's still on the market, but okay. it, it was never appropriate for or approved for pediatrics. pediatrics. Um, so. so usually when we're saying insulin, we're talking about an injection right, of, of right. insulin. And depending on the type of insulin and your glucose patterns, I mean, that can be, you know, four or five mm-hmm. injections a day per day right so talk to me about an insulin pump okay. and what it does and who might benefit from one of those right well first of all i guess i should say um you know p- patients with type 1 diabetes as far as pediatrics go you know that that is the t- the uh, candidate for an insulin pump um now i know in adults i think uh you see more a uh, type 2 patients mm-hmm. on an insulin pump but primarily in, in our population with pediatrics 0 to 18 years we we don't put type 2 patients on an oh. insulin pump. Um, but anyway, an insulin pump is a continuous delivery system of insulin. So it basically works kind of like your your pa- a normal pancreas would work, or that's the goal, to get mm-hmm. as close to that as possible. Um, so, you know, you, there's no more... The, some of the advantages would be um, not having to give four to five injections of insulin a day. Mm-hmm. Basically, every three days... Um, on any of the insulin pumps, there's several types. You know, the patient changes out the site. Um, so that's basically, I, I tell people, one poke every three days. So mm-hmm. that's definitely better. Better than, than five pokes a day. Yeah. Um, but it delivers insulin continuously um, at a certain rate per hour. And then when the patient is ready to eat, he or she will check the blood sugar. So uh, well, let me stop here and interject now. A lot of patients will say, so I still have to check my blood sugar? Yes. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that doesn't go away. You yeah. know, you still have to check your blood sugar. So anyway, they check their blood sugar um, and they count up how many grams of carbohydrates they're about to eat and enter that into the pump. And then the pump calculates their dose. So some precursors, bef- you know, to getting on an insulin pump or prerequisites would be this patient must check their blood sugar 
at least three or four times a day. Um, and they must be able to count carb carbohydrates um, because that's the way that you know what to tell your pump what you're doing. Right. Um, so that's basically yeah. how, how and it, it works. Just like you said, it's it's simulating a pancreas right. is what we're trying to do. Because the, the pancreas, the way it works is all the time we've got background insulin just kind of being released just to keep mm-hmm. our blood sugar in our in our normal pattern. Mm-hmm. And then when we eat, our pancreas squirts yes. out a little bit more to take care of the food that we've consumed. Mm-hmm. And so that's what that pump is doing is that exactly. little background insulin all the time. And then based on what we're eating, we're able to mm-hmm. uh, give ourselves that little extra bit at mealtime. Right. Um, you know, we do the same thing um, with some of the insulins out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I often call it a poor man's pump. You yeah. know, when we use um, injections. injections, you know, we've got a, a very long acting insulin that we mm-hmm. give once a day that kind of does that background insulin. Mm-hmm. And then a, a more rapid acting insulin that we give right before meals to, right. again, try and simulate the normal physiology of the pancreas. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a compliance standpoint, it, yeah. you know, that many injections a day can be be hard. That's right. And especially on adolescents mm-hmm. because they're not wanting to do an injection at at the lunch table. Definitely you know. not. That's our biggest problem. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's a little bit better for them to, to have that pump, but they've right. got to be responsible as well. That's you know, right. Amen. They, they've got to be, they got to be checking their sugars yeah. and they got to be entering their information into the um, pump right. um, for that. Right. So um, if you feel like you meet that criteria, though, that's definitely something you should be speaking yes. with your endocrinologist about um, as a viable option. Now, can you swim with those? So it, it depends. Um, some of them are waterproof, um, you know, and some of them are not, but um, you can always disconnect the insulin pump for a period of time and then reconnect it. Uh, that's one of the biggest questions, you know, um, yeah. is it waterproof? Right. Um, and, and playing sports. A lot of kids will say, well, can I not can I play sports with an insulin pump? You know, contact sports mm-hmm. like football, basketball, soccer. We, we may have to work around it, but absolutely. It makes actually playing sports a whole lot easier. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be on such a strict routine and schedule right. with an insulin pump. Now, very, very quickly, because oh, we're yeah. almost out of time, we had um, an email that came in that asked about slow stomach. Now, I'm guessing we're talking about gastroparesis type right. situation. Tell me very, very briefly what that is. Basically, your the nerves that innervate your gastric you know, gastrointestinal system are not working well because of uncontrolled blood sugars. Um, so when you eat, it just moves really, really slow. Mm-hmm. So we enter, encounter the problem of pain, you know, and issues there, and then also um, insulin working, you know, and having low blood sugars. Right, and nausea can go and along nausea. with that. Yeah. So um, if you want more information about gastroparesis, you can certainly email me at fit at mpbonline.org, and I'll be happy to send you some more information about that. And that hour went by so quick, Caitlin. It did. Thank you so much for being here today. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll come back. Yes, please come mm-hmm. back. And if you guys didn't get a chance to call in today, you can always email us and we'll be happy to answer your questions. Be sure to tune in every weekday at 11 a.m. for the full Southern Remedy lineup and subscribe to our podcasts. You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio.